Hey everyone, today's episode is a conversation with a cult survivor. The leader of this cult is a convicted rapist, so the conversation is very heavy. There are trigger warnings for coercive control, eating disorders, sexual assault and abuse of all kinds. So if you are sensitive to any of these topics, please give this one a miss. And there are also going to be resources in the show notes. So very, very heavy one, but I think much needed. A listener production. This podcast is being recorded on Gadigal land. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this country and elders past, present. We extend our respect to any First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people joining us today. Um, yesterday we had part one of our conversation with cult survivor Liz and this is part two. She's going to speak all about leaving the cult and also being deprogrammed and how, how that all happened. So here it is. So I was encouraged to write to Jong, the leader, mm-hmm. in prison, as we all were, but especially those he picked as his evergreens, which were the women that were basically supposed to dedicate their life to him and never marry how many of so you were picked? Thousands. They say that he, well, his goal, he used to say, was to have 10,000 women. Um, wow. and, and many of us think that he has achieved that goal wow. over time. So there were thousands of us. Fewer in Australia and he, yeah, he, he would stick, because he was in prison. He had so much time in his hands. and he's, For a rape yeah, charge? Yes. Yes. Multiple, yes. And he's a narcissist, so mm-hmm. he would read all the letters and the women that he liked he would respond to. Mm-hmm. And so we'd occasionally get a letter from him. And for me, at the beginning, they were very benign and sweet. And uh, and then towards, you know, the end of my time in JMS, they became, especially after I visited him in mm-hmm. prison, they became very sexual. Can we speak yeah. about you visiting him in prison? So mm-hmm. let's go back. You, you're underneath the blanket. You're going to South Korea. That yeah. is to visit him in prison. Yes. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. So you go to Korea. Yeah. Are you excited? Are you nervous? Mm-hmm. Do you have any feelings at this point because you're so brainwashed? Are you just kind of like going through the motions? What's your feeling when you land in Korea? I think mostly kind of mostly nerves. Yes, I was brainwashed. And I think looking back, like I say, it's almost like I'm talking about someone else because there was so much of me that I didn't have access to when I was indoctrinated that a lot of it does feel like a blur. Mm-hmm. But I think the overarching feeling was overwhelm. Like I'm supposed to be meeting the Messiah <laughs> right mm, now. Yeah. What? Like <laughs> how do you even begin to mm-hmm. put that somewhere in your brain, in your in your bot? Like it just, it was hard for me to comprehend and I felt like I should be feeling more than I was. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a theme mm. uh, for many victims when they meet the, the figure. But yeah, we went, we went and stayed with members for weeks. We went and visited him in prison. And we were taken in by his second in command, who is also now on trial for grooming. We sat across from him. He was behind plexiglass. It was all very, like there was two prison guards there. And um, he was translating, like we had a translator he didn't speak mm. English and it was pretty benign. Like he came in in his little tracksuit. He, he's this very tiny man, older than his pictures showed. And he said a bunch of nice things to us and then he was escorted out by the guard and he was blowing kisses at us. And I was like, what just happened? Um, and was there any mention of anything sexual then? 
no, not then. Right. And had yeah. the had the letters gotten to a point where where it was just suggestive and sexual, or was it was it explicit at this point? Uh, explicit. Right. Okay. Yeah. And would you? How did you respond to that element of it? Well, I took it to my leader, and I was like, I. <sighs> I don't, because she, again, she took so much joy in reading out those explicit letters to me. And I was so naive that I was like this, again, I just I learned to explain it away and be like, this must be some kind of spiritual thing that I don't understand. Mm. Not for a second did I think that I was going to be molested by him. And thank God he was in prison the entire mm. time I was in the cult. I took it to my leader and she said, you know, he's your spiritual husband. So you should be thinking about him like he's your spiritual husband. And and this leader, she was a groomer. So she, this is why she was so intentional about and took so much joy in telling me about these things. And I remember her saying to me, you can even, like, you should think about like holding him or touching him. You could even think about having sex with him at you if you want. And I was like, no, thanks. Mm. But thank you. Uh, <laughs> I was an 18 year old virgin. I, yeah. I, I, there was no way that I could conceptualise any of this in my mind. I was so, so mm. naive and more naive than your regular 18-year-old mm. because of the bubble that I'd grown up in. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So you saw him once in prison and is yep. that, and that was it? That's it. Okay. And then after, then you left Korea. Then, then what happens after that? Yeah, so so I left Korea. We came back. We, we actually spent some time in their um, cult compound out in rural South Korea. They have this whole, yep. like, outdoor temple with a network of mm-hmm. underground caves and tunnels all these buildings, like it's very, it's very affluent. They have, they have deep pockets. And how long were you there for? About three weeks. Okay. And were you doing everything as you were in Australia? Was it the four hours sleep? Was it the exact same schedule? Um, it was different. It was a different schedule. We, we obviously weren't evangelizing or anything like that, but Mm. a lot of, lot, lot more prayer, a lot more meeting people, um, talking to other members in, in South Korea. We went to one of their big underground churches. A lot of them are underground. They're very hidden. And I remember seeing the leader come in with like flanked with bodyguards and his second in command dripping in designer clothing. Pretty sure she was driving an armored van. So it was very like otherworldly. Right. And uh, when we stayed on the compound in in rural South Korea, we it's called Wamyeondong. You can look it up if you want. We had to sleep in a shipping container <laughs> wow. and then, you know, get up at two or one. We were sleeping much less when we were in Korea. Mm. Trudge through the snow, you know, to, to go and have a bath and go and pray in the caves. And mm. it's just a really otherworldly. And you were having yeah. only cold showers and baths at this at this yes. time, correct? Yes. Can you explain that a little bit why and and how that was for you? Yeah. So we were encouraged to set spiritual conditions to make ourselves worthy of meeting him. Sort of like is Lent. how they phrased. Yes. Right, exactly. Okay. Yeah. That's a good way. That's a good comparison. Um, so so we were encouraged to do that. And that could be anything from reducing the hours that you're sleeping even more. Fasting. Some members fasted for up to seven days. I tried. I failed at that. Um, but we were told to. And setting other spirit, like physical conditions that were supposed to help you feel the pain that he was going through because he was being persecuted and that's why he was in prison. And so I was encouraged by my head leader, among other things, like I was encouraged to do a few things that to physically abuse myself. And some of them are not ones I think I'll talk about. Okay. But this one in particular was having cold showers. Mm. And so I, it was fine in Australia, 
in summer, but mm. in South Korea in the middle of winter, it was sub-zero temperatures. And I remember just nearly passing out from the cold wow. because you're pouring this ice water over your head, your scalp is contracting and you just numb out for a second, you lose your vision. And it's it was just so painful. And I remember like crying while I was doing it and being like, I still have to do it. And you're trudging through the snow to pour ice cold water over yourself. Like it's, it was, it was torture. And I guess that's um, where the, the, um, what do you refer to as before? You said the, the self surveilling, self surveillance oh, yes, yes. comes into it because anyone would think, well, why don't you just have a bit of hot water in it? Yes. But it's because <laughs> totally. you you know, just can't do it. <laughs> Abby, if she was in a cup. <laughs> no, no, but, but. I love that though. Well, how can I? But, but your brain can't think that way. Yeah. You're thinking if I dare to do that, yes. and that is, that's going against everything that I've worked for, everything that I believe in. Is that? 100%. So your brain yes. cannot, you can't stop doing those things. Yes, exactly. God. Self-surveilling. So, so, you're, so you're basically physically, like you said, torturing yourself, mm-hmm. punishing yourself. Mm-hmm. You meet the, you meet a convicted serial rapist in, in jail. Yeah. Then you leave and then you come back to Australia and you continue being in the cult? Yep. Okay. Yeah. So, yes. So from there, uh, we came back, everything kicked back into gear. We were working even harder. This was apparently, this was 2012, so the year of the rapture, right? Mm-hmm. And so there was so much emphasis on being perfect, on perfecting yourself physically and spiritually and um, in every other possible way. And so we amped everything up. We worked harder. We slept less. We ate less. And and that's also another big tool that cults use because if they can in, inject a sense of urgency into mm. uh your operations, you are going to put in way more effort mm-hmm. and rest so much less mm-hmm. because you think you're there's this kind of finite ending mm-hmm. that you're working towards and mm-hmm. what's more poignant and important than the rapture. Of course. And so it was framed as a spiritual rapture. Mm-hmm. So we we didn't expect that our bodies would go up like I was raised to believe in Christianity, mm-hmm. but we were told that it would be something you'd feel spiritually and you'd still continue your work on earth, but we had to perfect ourselves internally and externally to make it. So it wasn't that you were, it wasn't like a rapture like like evangelicals yeah. often think. It was just an uh, internal rapture almost. Yeah. So there was no way for them to be wrong yeah. about this. I know. Yeah. Wow. It was like, if you don't feel it, it's your fault. You, you missed it. You haven't yeah. done it. Yes. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I was thinking like, what happened when it didn't happen? But uh, totally. But everyone else is saying that it happened. And you're going, yeah, same. Yep. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Totally, yeah, guys. Exactly. Love it. <laughs> so, so it was. An, it, it's, so it's an internal. It's an internal. And and there's this this fast pace. Like we've got to get everything done. Yeah. And we've got to be perfect ourselves yeah. and each other, and also mm. recruit more people as well. Totally. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So that's when you know the front group, the modeling group, really kicked off. That's when we got the supermodel over. That's when we um, started to open up businesses on on the ANU campus and they totally let us do it. Uh, So we had like legitimate ABN tied to this front group with no connection to the church um, that we were running our operations through and we were recruiting women through that. Uh, Fortunately, we were completely unsuccessful. So Okay, great. uh, That was good. Um, I'm glad you were bad at recruiting Colin as well. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Um, (laughs) um, And I, yeah, I I remember we just, we'd spend hours every week meeting people, running these front groups. We arranged fashion shows, like modelling shows. (laughs) I laugh because um, the one that we worked towards at the end of the year was at a retirement village. So we were were pretty good. Um, (laughs) Wow. Love that. Amazing. What was the response like? Uh, The old people loved it. Yeah. They they ate it up. 
Yeah, wow. it was great. <laughs> That's a thrill for them. Um, so were you were you employing the same strategies as the people who recruited you in that moment or was it more about like come and do this fun thing rather than trying to find people's vulnerabilities? No, it was the same. Same but, thing. But this is basically like a, a front group is kind of like this catch-all for people mm-hmm. um, where we or the cult can, and I, I certainly wasn't as strategic about it as I was supposed to be. I was more like... If they want to join, they can, yeah. which is not how cult works. So no. that's probably why I sucked at it. Um, but <laughs> they um, essentially, it gives you this whole host of the right demographic of people that you're looking for. In this case, models, our leaders would be picking women out, okay. singling them out to have chats with them, have coffees with them, invite them to Bible studies, building relationships with them individually. Okay. So it provided them access to women who they'd already kind of built a relationship with, if that makes right. sense. Right, okay. Mm. I remember once being almost like being at the cusp of being recruited to an MLM thing. <gasps> it was a bit cultish. Oh, MLM. They are cultish. What's up? Yes. Multi-level marketing company. Oh, my God. We'll have to do a podcast about it. <laughs> yeah, but one of the things yeah. that they did was it was a woman that I knew in a context, and mm. what she did was the love bombing thing, which yep. was like the – you're incredible. You're unlike any other woman I've seen. Mm. You're very charismatic. Yeah. You're blah, blah, blah. And then kind of like drew a flower with petals. And apparently I'm one of the petals. And like, I'll get if I pay that much <laughs> and then somebody else. But what I remember that's in common for with what you're saying is this, this incredible feeling that they can give you of like how special you are. Mm, yes. And that's basically what hooks you in, right? Like, yes. it's like you are unique. You are you offer so much more. And if you've got a praise kink. Yeah. I mean, which we, don't we all? <laughs> don't we all? Is that not all? Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's hard to resist that. Yeah. Totally. That's yeah. a human desire to be, to feel seen, to feel wanted, to feel special. Long. That's yeah. Human. So how long until you, how did you leave? Yeah. So, so that's um, a whole other story. So what happened was over the course of the year when they, when the sleep deprivation started to take a toll on my mental and physical health, um, my eating disorder started to creep back. They restricted my food further in response to that almost. Wow. They they said it was my sin that was mm-hmm. making me um, lose weight. Wow. Um, wow. And, and did uh, you believe that? Kind, of, kind like, of. But but there was a part of me, and I remember writing a letter to my head leader at the time being like, I need help because mm. this is not – I'm doing my – I'm trying so hard Mm. to eat. I'm trying so hard to be well and I can't, I don't know how Mm. because an eating disorder, you don't have control over Mm. that. And they treated me like I should have control over that. And it was me wanting to be skinny or something, Mm. something along those lines. And Mm -hmm. I was like, in the letter, I remember saying, it's not that I want to be skinny. I want to be dead. And I don't know how else to explain it. And I think that was my subconscious literally trying to, incapacitate, like Mm -hmm. just get me out of there, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. but I wasn't allowed to access help because Mm -hmm. apparently it was my sin. Right. So I wasn't, you know, all I needed to do was repent. Mm -hmm. So I didn't really have much access to medical care at the time until I ended up in the emergency department and this might be TMI, but when I lost all the weight that I appreciate that, um, when I lost all the weight that I did, I, uh, you know, you, your internal organs also waste. Mm. Um, and I think it was like BMI, 15, so it's emaciated. Wow. And, um, and you lose all this weight 
not just in your on your limbs, but in your heart and in your intestines and in, mm. in everything. So I didn't shit for 10 days. Wow. And, yeah. I just did a podcast about me not pooing for seven days <laughs> and I was so frightened. It's you can die. You think you can, you can you, die? You're like, I'm going to go septic. You're yep. like, this is it? Yes. Yeah. My bowels are going <laughs> to yeah. tear. I'm done. So you didn't poo for, se- for 10 days. days? Let me tell you. So this, so I remember getting up for prayer. Getting up, you know, typical, you know, 2 a.m., getting up and remembering that, like, feeling this intense pain in my intestines. Like, I can only describe it as a contraction, and I've never given birth, so I'm wow. probably way off. Yeah. But I just remember the most pain, like, white from the pain. Wow. Because obviously my bowels, they were just like, they'd kaput. They, they, couldn't they, work. they couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, they could not do it. And so I, I doubled over, and then it kind of passed, and I was like, okay, we're good, we're good got ready, put my clothes on, put my makeup on, got down to pray. It happened again. This time it was worse. And I was like, fuck, what is going on? And eventually they started coming more frequently and happening more intensely to the point that I just felt like my insides were going to tear and they probably were. Mm. And so at 4am I was rushed off to the emergency ward and uh, got an enema from the hottest doctor I've ever seen in my life. Wow. And <laughs> the one um, win in this story. He yeah, so it was not a sexy environment. It was not a sexy situation, but mm-hmm. I had to basically get treated. And after that, I needed to go get a colonoscopy. And so that was another three days of no food because you mm-hmm. can't eat before a colonoscopy. Oh, and they were like, yeah. Your bowels are so fucked. Normally prep is one day let's make it three. And I was like, fuck. And um, so I remember, you know, walking to university and literally collapsing on my way there. And just the way that you are, you can't be unhappy. You can't be distressed. And so when I was kind of walking to uni, you know, or to my job or to recruit or whatever, I'd have a panic attack or I'd collapse out of weakness. And then I would literally just have it, dust myself off, pick myself up, put a smile back on and keep going. Wow. Um, and that's that was a few times a day at that point. Wow. And then I had the colonoscopy. And, I mean, I was like that for a couple of months towards the end. And I had a colonoscopy and they told me there was an extra loop in my bowel. It was just my insides were pretty fucked. And that was partly because of the abuse that they got us to to perform on ourselves. And so one of the things they made me do was give myself enemas, which is so, so unsafe. Wow. What's uh, a clean, that, quote unquote, cleanse yourself? Is that yeah. the theory? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and he, like the leader, something him had written to me. Jong had written to me, tell me to do that. And so anyway, so all of that happened. My mum tried to visit to help me because she knew I'd been in the emergency unit. She knocked on the front door. They were like, oh, no, she's fine. She's fine. She really kind of pushed, had to push away in there and she saw me. And I just remember her being shocked because I was so unwell looking. How long and had it been since she'd seen you? Sorry. Oh, probably a couple of months. Right. Um, not that long. Like I was still occasionally allowed to see her. She was kind of trying to appeal to the leaders and be like, what, you know, she looks unwell. Is she okay? And they're like, no, she's fine. No, she's really, she's really good. She's happy. Mm. She's totally fine. They were trying to kind of put her off and I needed help. I needed medical care. I was unwell. I was so stuck because I couldn't go anywhere to get any help mm. and they weren't willing to help me. They weren't even willing to understand the situation I was in. And um, they were only pushing me harder and they were getting angry at me and and rebuking me, um, abusing me psychologically because I wasn't able to keep up with the immensely busy schedule that they had. Mm. So I was just basically just collapsing from the inside. And uh, it was the most horrible time. (laughs) Like I just, I remember, yeah, I was a mess. And I got to the point that 
I eventually did get to see a doctor because my mum kept pushing it and she's a saint. And I did eventually kind of, I I broached the idea of hospital with them because the doctor was like, you need to go. Mm -hmm. And they were like, no, you don't. Then it got to the point that I was so unwell that I was just a burden to them more than I was useful. Mm. And so they were like, fine, go, you know, because Mm. I wasn't providing any value anymore. Mm. I was just annoying. (laughs) Um, And so mum found a place for me in um, the eating disorders unit at a hospital in Sydney and and I, I went there. And I was still indoctrinated at the time. Like I was completely brainwashed. I was still making myself get up at, you know, around 4am, sleep in. Um, And I I was still getting up. The nurse would come in with her torch and be like, go to sleep. And I'd be like, no. Um, And yeah, and I was, I was, I was having, I remember having panic attacks in there, feeling like the walls were closing in. Like it was, and I was reading my scripture obsessively. I was so scared of being out of my environment because I was exposed, right, to other, you know, truths that might make me fall away. So I worked really hard. And all this time, my mom is trying to tell the psychiatrist in the hospital, she is indoctrinated. She's in a cult. And he thought that she was just being neurotic. She was just the, she's just the crazy mom. Oh my God. So there's no assistant. Like when I tell you, like my mom was calling the AFP being like, my daughter is wasting away. She's dying. She is in a cult. She's not safe. And they were like, there's nothing we can do. And wow. I understand that on the ground... I understand that there's not much you can do when you walk into a situation. They said if she's not being physically abused, mm. then we can't can't help you. And if they had said, how are you? I would have said, I'm fine. And I'm here not against my will. I'm mm-hmm. here, my choice. Mm-hmm. And uh, But they don't have systems of referral in place. They don't assess these organisations at a higher level. They don't have a way to assess them or identify mm-hmm. that this might be not the charitable organisation it claims to be. And it is scary mm-hmm. because I have spoken to other mums. I've, I've worked to help deprogram other people since mm-hmm. coming out um, with a professional deprogrammer. And I've worked with the Cult Information Family Support Organisation and I've counselled parents who have children caught in cults. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they all tell me the same story, which is we've gone to the AFP and we've gone to the Charities Commission and the Charity Commission... Um, the ANU who, you know, or universities that run campus groups that front groups are, you know, a part of. Mm. No one's taken any action. And it's been so long that mm. I've been speaking out about this, so long that so many professionals who are far more knowledgeable than I am have been speaking out about this and we've seen no movement. We mentioned at the start of the of this conversation about all the ABNs and, and the the fraud, I guess, that's yes. associated with with this group yeah. and how they kind of go under the radar. What do you need to be considered a charity mm. in in this country? Because right. it, it, if there's no grounds for, like you said, if there's no physical abuse, yep. if there's no grounds for, you know, holding someone hostage because you're saying you want to be there, surely there are grounds for things like having multiple false ABNs. Like if, <laughs> right. if you have to go through that kind of avenue, is there yep. nothing that can be done in, in that regard? Oh, yeah, you'd think that there would be, right? And, you know, when we interviewed, or our, our journalist, Sarah, she's incredible, she interviewed, uh, as you might have seen, the Charities mm-hmm. Commissioner yes. on Channel 7 Spotlight. And her answers, she, I mean, she was so media trained that she had no answer other than I can provide no comment. Mm. And here is Sarah showing her a video of a threat from the head leader, from yes. this charitable organisation, apparently, yes 
literally filming herself threatening my friend Amy, who yes. is currently mm. going through a criminal trial where she's trying to prosecute someone who's molested her, mm-hmm. is saying, if you keep speaking out, we are going to ruin your life effectively. Mm-hmm. And this is being shown to the Charities Commissioner and this organisation claims to be charitable, mm. receives taxpayer funding, doesn't get, you know, doesn't have to pay tax. And all she has to say, no, no human empathy, no response other than we look into everything and I can't comment. Mm. And it's insane to me because you've seen hard evidence. But the issue is when it comes to these organisations, you have got the members inside who will claim this is the most incredible organisation that mm. I've ever been affiliated with. And they balance these with the people coming out saying I've experienced serious harm. And also because the way the way that cults work, I guess, mm. is all of these things are seemingly quote unquote done to yourself. Like you are choosing yes. to not eat. You are choosing yes. to be you are choosing to work. You are choosing to go to a career. Yeah. That's right. So the way that they have indoctrinated you, they can say, well, you know, she just didn't have she you know, people who aren't in the cult. Yeah. So well, you know, she chose to be part of that religion. And it's that's it. Yeah. You can't change that. And are there any yeah. men? Yeah, there are. Okay. Um, and so men, you know, they are of use to the group because essentially that's what it comes down to. Um, but men are more, you know, they they had legitimacy. Um, they bring funds. They mm. um, they still work. They still recruit. They're just not really of interest to the leader himself. Wow. I just want to ask about Amy. Yeah. So because you mentioned Amy before and Amy's mm. in this um, Channel 7 spotlight. So she's – you yeah. went together – were you at the same time? She – she yeah. went into the cult after after you. That's right. And yeah. she um, was allegedly molested by the leader. Yeah. And there's talks about, you know, this being sex trafficking. I guess what's your experience or understanding of, of how that worked within, within the cult and yeah. what is currently happening with Amy and her case? Um, so I'm very close with Amy. She's mm. an incredible, incredible person. And she has been on this very long battle to try and take this man down with a bunch of other women who are speaking Mm -hmm. out. So when it comes to sex trafficking, that's obviously very hard. It's very hard to prosecute Mm -hmm. and it's very hard to identify. And it's kind of, it comes along with the same idea of like, how do we assess these organisations from the start? Because spot treating these issues are much harder when it comes to a cult because you will get someone saying, no, I'm choosing this, I'm Mm -hmm. choosing to be here. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the dynamics behind it, the psychological dynamics that are happening, this person has no access to agency or mm-hmm. choice or critical thought or, you know, they they aren't, they don't have the capacity or the ability to make decisions for themselves that are in their best interests. They mm-hmm. have been conditioned with a framework that only allows them to make decisions that are in the best interest of the organisation. Mm. So if you look at it from a psychological perspective, you can see if this person's under coercive control, and they are not choosing to go and sleep with that leader. Mm. That is not their choice. They've been coerced to do that. But that's a really tough thing to prosecute. Mm. I just think that there is a strong argument for the reality of sex trafficking, not just being something where people are, you know, physically taken mm-hmm. and and detained, but by all appearances might have might be exercising their own choice mm-hmm. when in fact they don't have choice. Mm. So it's just... Like, 
we we are still seeking response from the Charity Commission. We are still seeking response from the AFP. We've had Senator David Shoebridge put questions in Parliament mm-hmm. to question the, the Charities Commission about whether they are looking into these groups. Mm. And so far, we haven't heard anything. And I hope that they come through. I hope that we do. But we need more stringent checks and balances when it comes to assessing these organisations from the beginning. We also need coercive control to be better understood in the legislation and in in just general society Um, because we have started to get, I know New South Wales has coercive control legislation that recognises it, but I think that's the only state at the moment. Mm -hmm. I looked at the Federal Bureau of Legislation, they have nothing. So we don't have it in our our legal system properly yet. Mm -hmm. We're still developing our understanding of it and it's so new. That's key in getting us to understand how do we assess whether an organisation is coercive, Mm -hmm. um, is malicious, Mm -hmm. is exploitative versus an organisation that is benign and charitable Mm because we don't want to make it so stringent that no organisations can Mm. receive charity status. Um, Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So is Amy's case currently in courts in Korea? It is. In South Korea? Is that what's happening? Yeah. So she just came back from her... I'm, I'm sure she won't mind me saying this. She's just come back from her ninth trip to South Korea to take part in the trial. And so they have thrown every, the cult has thrown every spanner in the works mm-hmm. in this trial. It's taking forever. Including threats as well from yes. the New South Wales leader. Uh, Melbourne, Pres- yeah. Mel- Melbourne, President, yeah. yes, okay. Yep. Saying it's- that they'll ruin her career. There was a video sent Yes. That was threatening a way of saying they're going to expose her and ruin her life. What, what else? Yep. What did they threaten her with exactly? I remember it being a very oh, disturbing video. It was very disturbing. It was based, it was not, they didn't say anything too explicitly. They were just mm. like, you will regret it yes. if you keep speaking out. Mm-hmm. And they've done the same thing to me in the past. Right. And I, I really firmly believe that the more of us that speak up, the more safe we all are because there's strength in numbers. Yes. And so, you know, I stopped speaking out for a very long time because. Uh, they stalked me. You know, I moved states and they stalked me there. They, How did they, they stalk you? Me. Would they come to your front door? Would they, what would they? They turned up at my work and wow. they, they started turning up every day. And saying um, what? Uh, at the time, uh, I remember my, it was my head leader. She, she grabbed me and, and was like shaking me and started crying. In pu- This wow. is in public. Stop speaking out. You're, you're hurting people. You're ruining people's lives. But then behind the scenes, I got more threats, suing for defamation, mm-hmm. um, things like that. Okay. And so I stopped for a long time. It's gotten to the point where these things are starting to come to light. And so I think as many victims that can add their voice and feel safe in doing so, mm. the better. Can I ask, what is it with the Australian women thing? Like, mm. So first of all, does it make it harder to prosecute because it's outside of Australia? Second mm. of all, was there any targeting specifically for Australian women? And if yes... Did they play on the whole thing of like westernization also includes more sin kind of thing and mm. kind of like the East is more like, you know, in touch with their spirituality and, you know, was that part of it as well? I'm just curious to see like how yeah. did they get, you know, link South Korea to Australia? Like how did that work? Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Um, they're in 72 countries across the world. So they oh, are really, wow. really widespread. Yeah. Um, they, they They have a lot of members and... So, you know, every country was treated differently. They always said, you know, you have to take a different strategy when you evangelise different people from different countries. And Australian people are more self-centred, apparently. (laughs) 
Um, so I mean, make of that what you will. Okay. <laughs> I know. Um, and so there was that. You know, there wasn't much. Really, the cult didn't really bring in too much Eastern philosophy. It mm. was very much um, an amoeba. It was kind of just a, an organisation of its own, very based on Christian ideals, and there is a lot of Christianity in South mm-hmm. Korea. Um, and so culturally, it was pretty homogenous. Okay. Um, so there wasn't too much of that aspect, actually. Yeah. Mm, right. Yeah, that was a good question. After you left, so they're stalking you, they're yeah. threatening you when you're, when you're speaking out and then you, then you stop speaking out. Yeah. Because it's... We've likened it a lot to an abusive relationship and a lot of people that have been in cults or people that study cults say that it's a lot like an abusive relationship. The, you know, the strategies they can get to brainwash you and make you want to stay and confuse you. Did you, did you miss the cult? Because a huge marker of, you know, domestic Mm -hmm. violence and and abusive relationships is that you miss the person despite the fact that they are abusing you. Were there times after you left that you wanted to be back there? That's an interesting one. I think there were times after I left, and I I hear this from a lot of victims who reach out, they are terrified because they think that there's no hope for them after they leave. Yes. And they must be going to hell. So there's that aspect of I only had it good when I was there. Even Which though, is similar to an abusive relationship yes. in that no one ever loved you the way that I love you. Exactly. Yes. So there's that, definitely that aspect. Mm-hmm. I missed certain people uh, because we all became very close, but mm-hmm. I never, I think once I came out, so I was professionally deprogrammed after mm-hmm. coming out of hospital. They flew a deprogrammer over from the United States and mm-hmm. he stayed with us for three or four days mm-hmm. and um, eventually basically undid the brainwashing. Um, How? It was so good. It was, it wasn't, it was the most horrible time. Like it was but, so uh, much fun. We were in awesome. a ball pit. It was like, we went to dream world. It was crazy. Yeah, no, trampolined. Why? Yeah, it was really fun. We did like a paint and sip class. Like, like yeah, super chill, so super fun. chill, no stress. It was yeah, really it was chill. Awesome. We like spoke about like other things. Like, we did a free podcast and for a walk. It was really good. No, what, we did a cake at one point. Um, so, so this is what's interesting. So, and I've, I've been on both sides because I've done deprogrammings as well. And so you get to see both sides. And and at the time, you know, I'm brainwashed. This little man comes in and my, he comes in with my uncle. So my mum mm. had flown him over. My mum's like, oh, why don't you get dressed? I was in my PJs. I was like, why? Who cares about mm. anything anymore? I just come out of hospital. Mm. And she she was like, just, oh, just get dressed. We can go out for a coffee. I got my clothes on. She opens the door to this, my uncle, and to this random guy with like Nike trainers on, socks pulled up to his knees, uh, cargo shorts, polo shirt tucked in, and a briefcase. And I was like, who the fuck is this oh, guy? Yeah. I know. Um, and he also, I realised you guys have to leave. Am I? Oh, no, no, we don't. Keep it's going. okay. Keep going. It got cancelled. Who gives a fuck? Keep going. Oh, okay. Is when <laughs> Who cares about Mark Singer? That. Not Thank me. You. Keep going. <laughs> Cancel the I show. Oh, um, <laughs> no, okay. All right. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll keep going. You're so but sweet. I don't want to take no, as, long, time as long as, whenever you need to leave, babe, I could say for seven hours. I've, I've taken the whole day off. <laughs> Fuck so yeah. Yours. Keep going. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the man has the pulled up yes. socks. So I, I won't, I won't rush through this story then. No, um, babe, um, take so, your time. <laughs> um, so he comes in with my uncle and this is actually a really smart move because if you bring in someone who I didn't know my uncle that well, like we, we love each other. Our family's relatively close, but I wasn't going to act up in front of him. Mm. And so that reaction that I had with my mum, where it's like, whoa, I'm about to be attacked spiritually. Mm. I had to kind of temper that a bit because mm. I, you know, um, and, and that's often a strategy that deep, deep programmers will use, but he walks in 
with his little briefcase. His name's Rick Ross, by the way, same as the rapper. Okay. Um, which is cool. Iconic. Um, yeah, I tried to get him to call you, by the way. It was Oscar's <laughs> oh idea. I'm like, I can't find him between all the Rick Ross finds. Yes. Oh, my you know? God. <laughs> yes. Too hard. Too hard. <laughs> he says when he gets on planes, people like think the rapper is coming on the plane and Aww. then they're disappointed when it's a small Jewish man. It's, um, it's, <laughs> it's just Rick with his socks up. <laughs> he's Rick so with great. his briefcase. You know, Rick I'm, I'm still Rick. Rick. Yeah, this is Rick. It's like, you know, like Beach Barbie, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Different different Ricks, you know, as if it's Ricks in the world and people accept it. Pickle Rick. Yeah. Um, Anyway, so he's a brilliant, brilliant man. Like he's in his 70s now. He's been doing it for decades. And um, actually my parents had arranged it for much earlier, but I ended up being told by my head leader, this was just before I went to hospital, I was going to go away with my family. And then at the last minute, my head leader was like, it'll be detrimental to you. You can't be with your family. Like you're you're in too much of a fragile Mm. state of mind. So she had to cancel his trip, Mm. rebook it. Mm. (laughs) I just, the the amount of shit that my mother has been through, she is fucking incredible. And I remember him walking in with his briefcase and me being like, who are you? And he was very polite at the beginning. He, he was like, hi, Liz, it's nice to meet you. Uh, my mum just, your mum just brought me here so we could have a conversation. You know, I heard you just came out of hospital. I was wondering if we could talk about some things. And, and I, immediately I was like, my back went up and I was like, this is, this is not safe. Mm. I was like, I don't know who you are, but I need to go and have a walk. Mm. And so I went and got my running shoes on in my room. And I remember, I'll never forget this. I remember my mum coming in. She's not much of a hugger. Mm. I mean, she actually is now more, but back then, you know, very strict upbringing and not very expressive. And she came into my room while I was putting my shoes on. She she was standing there. She grabbed me and I could feel her shaking. She grabbed me so tight. She was trembling. And she goes, please don't run away. <sighs> Something about that, the emotion in the way that she delivered it, the uh, the yeah, the tone in her voice. Mm. Like I'd been trained by them to think, by the cult to think that she... Satan was using her and talking mm. through her. And so I never, I didn't trust wow. her. I'd lost, and we'd had a really close relationship. And I remember mm. her always saying like, we would tell each other anything. And then when I was in the cult, the way that she adjusted was she at the beginning thought she'll always tell the truth. And so she always believed everything I said when I tried to put her off. And she realized that she couldn't trust me anymore, which is pretty heartbreaking. Mm. But she said that to me and I was like, okay. And I went for a walk and something in me made me come back because I could have very easily run away. Mm. That's what we were told to do. And that's what I've seen being done when we've gone mm-hmm. and done other deprogrammings is people just um, crack the shits and leave. They run away um, back to the mm. organization, back to the cult or yes. they run away to other, yeah, right, okay. Back to the cult. And, and what typically happens is once they do that, the cult pulls them in further. Yeah. Because, yeah, they don't want to let that happen again. Mm-hmm. And so often you get one shot mm, and that's it, wow. at least for the next few mm-hmm. years. Um, and so I, I went for my walk and I came back. And a part of it also was just that I was so sick and so exhausted and so scared because I'd got to the point where I understood that my heart was going to stop if I, if I got any sicker. Mm. I also, in my brainwashed state, understood that I couldn't leave this truth that I had come to learn. Mm-hmm because unimaginably bad things would happen to me. Mm. So in my mind, and I didn't have any support, I knew that I wouldn't be helped to recover. Mm. And so in my mind, I was like, okay, well, I have no choice. Mm. Going to hospital for me was like getting a, it sounds horrible, but like getting some kind of a top up to help me go a little longer. Mm -hmm. And then in my mind, I kind of made peace with the idea that I'll go back, 
I, I very likely will not survive. Mm. The longer I stay in, the worse I'm going to get, but I have no choice. But at that moment, I was like, I was too scared to go back right away because I knew in my mind that meant death to me. And so I was like, I'll just stay here for a couple more weeks and try and get my health back into a position where I feel a little bit more stable. So I came back and Rick's waiting for me at the table mm. and mum's organised Subway catering and... Yum. Um, yeah, yum. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> cookie? Subway cookie? No, no cookies. Just mm. the... Yeah, just the rolls. Wow. Well, interesting. <laughs> Rick yeah. would have loved the cookie. Rick deserved a cookie at that point, he I deserved, think. He deserved <laughs> so Rick. many cookies, but she didn't get him a cheesecake shop cake, so that was nice. Oh, okay. Um, well, that, upgrade, that explains the no cookies. Yeah. I agree. All right. It's an upgrade. All right. It's okay. Um, <laughs> so, so basically, like... What he his approach, and this is fascinating to me. Mm. It makes so much sense for the brainwashed mind because what happens is when a brainwashed person's ideology, doctrine, beliefs are attacked directly, immediately your guard goes up, right? Mm. So you're like, no, don't talk to me about that. You shut off, you shut mm-hmm. down, and you escape. The way that he approached it was not bringing up JMS, at least not in the first day. He mm. and this man sat down for eight to nine hours a day, did not get up, didn't pee, barely ate, didn't drink any water. He just talked. Like Someone he, get him a Frank Green. He needs <laughs> some hydration. Yeah. Okay. I know. I think, like, he needs an Abbey Chatfield drink bottle. Yeah. Like, Rick, he, <laughs> I mean, I appreciate Rick's work, but, but he yeah. didn't pee. This man does not pee. Like, I... God, I hope he doesn't listen to this. But um, <laughs> he was extraordinary. urinary <laughs> schedule. <laughs> his bladder <laughs> must yeah, have stretched over time. He's a strong yeah. man in every way. It. Strong I, bladder, yeah. strong mind. <laughs> I know, Strong I legs know. for running. Yes. Rick, Rick is. Okay, sorry, sorry. It's funny. Him. In fact, you were like, he didn't even wee. He's, a, he's, he's he amazing. Okay, so Rick's not weeing. Rick's, Rick's, Rick's honed in. Yes, he is in the, he's in the fucking yeah. zone. He yeah. Cheesecake. Cheesecake, yeah. Um, he ate half of that slice. I remember vividly. Um, he oh. didn't finish it. You're obsessed with Rick's eating and excretion habits. Well, I think, you know, when you've had an eating disorder, you are obsessed. Of course, yeah, of that's course. Sorry. Food related. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Of no, course. don't apologise. But it was just like, oh, that was all I was really like. I was like, when's the cake coming? You know, yeah. like, um, <laughs> apart from the fact that, you know, my whole world is crashing down. Yeah. But, um, so he, he, like, he was just in the fucking zone. Like, he was so honed in on me. And he he's very good at reading body language mm-hmm. and cues and, He's just an expert at that. Um, and his approach was not to bring up the JMS cult or any cults that were kind of similar, but he started talking about cultic dynamics overall. Okay. So he just was like just randomly pulling a story out of his hat here, a story out of his hat there. Examples of what? Like different cults and different wa- ways that people coercively control or organisations right. coercively control people. Okay. Different practices done in, which often are really similar across all the different mm. cults. They're very similar, whether it's an MLM, whether it's a, you know, a political um, cult mm-hmm. group, where the, whether it's a religious group, mm-hmm. all very similar. And so what he was doing was a, just sort of like massaging my brain mm-hmm. into coming around to recognising what the dynamics of coercive mm-hmm. control looked like. And so my immediate reaction was to be like, and I tried my hardest to block out everything he was saying. I, I really did. I was chanting in my head, mm-hmm. you know, I was doing all this stuff. Yeah. But eventually, like what was getting through to me was all of these cultic dynamics yeah, I can see them for what they are. That's definitely a cult, but mine's not. Mm. And there's only so many times you can do that, right, mm-hmm. until you start to kind of mentally break down and go, mm-hmm. okay, this is all really similar mm-hmm. to what I've been through. Mm-hmm. Maybe, you know, maybe there's something to this. Mm-hmm. 
but that takes time and sometimes it doesn't work. I think he's got about a 70% success rate. And, you know, this is because we have to choose to be there ourselves. And Mm -hmm. I think being sick um, was really advantageous. Mm. Yeah, I was, I was, I was there. I didn't have much strength to leave. And I remember after that first day at the very end, I broke down. So that was actually pretty early for most Mm. people. He he got to me very well. And I just remember breaking down and being like, okay, I, I understand that Providence is a cult. Please just tell me everything that you know about them. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, sorry. That was the second day. Okay. That was the second day, second afternoon. The first day was like just torture. Like I finished the day with him. I I remember, sorry, my memory's a bit spotty. No, no, don't be silly. But, yeah, I, I, I remember getting into my car and driving to the parking lot across the road mm. and just screaming at the top of my lungs. Like I was so confused. I was so like everything that I'd believed in, dedicated my whole life to, would have given my life to Mm. and found my entire identity in Mm. was starting to kind of crumble. Mm. And I was so confused. I was so upset. I was just, and I was unwell. I was just in the worst mental state possible. And I just remember screaming and crying and just not knowing how to process any of this because it was so beyond what I'd ever experienced before having my whole framework of understanding the world and myself just kind of start to get cracks in it and Mm. this was I hadn't even recognized that I'd been abused Mm. and and then but it was starting to work that first day you were starting to think like is this is this what he's been speaking about all day that's other cults yeah okay yeah and I think you know I'd had a bit more sleep since coming back of course so I had a little bit more critical thinking Mm -hmm. capacity Mm -hmm. coming back online and I was also at the point where I was so unwell that I was like I I don't have the strength to resist all of this information Mm -hmm. as much as I would have when I was well Mm -hmm. And I remember texting the group and being like, I think I'm in hell. I don't know what's going on. Like those were, I use those words. Um, Mum's brought someone to the house to talk to me about the cult. And they started calling me all through the night. I remember getting a call from her at 2 a.m. being like, go come to our house and we'll fly you to Melbourne. Like we've, we've organised a plane for you. Like, oh, my God. I was like, and so I was at this crossroads where I was like, I could go back now or I could stay mm. and thank fuck, I made the decision Mm -hmm. to stay. What made Um, you decide to stay? Because it would be much easier in that moment to go back. Yeah. uh, The fear that I was going to die if I went back. Right. You know, I was physically so unwell. That was the one thing. Yeah, that was it. And, and there was probably a little part of me that was like, I need to hear this guy out. Mm -hmm. But I was terrified of Mm -hmm. doing that. Mm -hmm. So it was just, there were so many emotions, you know, and I think I have kind of, um, a lot of it, I've kind of, I was, what's the word, disassociated from Yes. Um, in a lot of ways. And I spent the most of the next year when I recovered pretty disassociated from mm. a lot of things. Mm. But, yeah, eventually he got through to me. And So uh, on day two did he tell you about the specific province yeah. itself? Yes, that is when I broke and I was like, okay, I, I understand mm. it's a cult. Uh, not before I tried to dig up all the dirt on him that I possibly could. Oh. Mm. Um, <laughs> but you couldn't find it because his name's Rick Ross. So you're trying to Google it and you're going, and you're going, he's you're a rapper. You're secretly a rapper. <laughs> you're, going, you're going, I found out he's a rapper. What's going on with this Rick Ross bitch nonsense? I know, yeah. yeah. It's like I, I, I looked up everything I could and he does um, – he has, a, I think the Church of Scientology tried to sue him 
Wow. Go Rick. Yeah. Go Rick. Go fucking mm. Rick. Like he Fuck yeah, Rick. is our force. And these deprogrammers, like they put themselves in so much harm. And this is something that I'd like to do down the track, but this is the one thing that I'm like, because I'm studying psychology. I'm most of the way through yeah. my degree. But, you know, it's, it's a tough career. Like he's had colleagues who have had live snakes put in their letterbox by a cult, <gasps> like poisonous live snakes wow. to deter them. And he's been sued multiple times. Mm-hmm. And often it's the church behind the person that sues. If it's mm-hmm. an unsuccessful deprogramming, they'll sue. Mm-hmm. And especially because back in, I think it was the wow. 80s maybe, they would actually physically kidnap people. So mm-hmm. parents would arrange for victims to be, they'd hire bodyguards and they'd hire the deprogrammer. And they'd kidnap them, tie them up, in some hotel room somewhere and deprogram them that way because mm. they couldn't escape. And it wow. worked, wow. but it's also illegal. So yes. Oh, to kidnap someone, of course. Yes. And you're going, yes. oh, duh. You're going, good, <laughs> they got them. They tie, tie, oh, yeah, cool, you can't just kidnap you even if it's a child. You can't, you can't. Yeah. And isn't that interesting that then they're the only ones that have committed a crime, really? Yes. Isn't that interesting? It, yeah, technically, in the eyes wow. of the law. Wow. Okay. So yeah. in day three, mm-hmm. you was, and Rick... What do you? What happens then? Yeah. So what it was just eating? like, what are you eating? What are you eating? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> right. so What's Rick's was- outfit on day three? <laughs> OOTD deprogramming with Rick on TikTok. Get ready with me to deprogram Liz from from. Sorry, so I got my new Adidas socks. (laughs) Got my rod and gun polo. Yeah, rod and gun polo briefcase from Office Works. That's Rick. I um, forget what we were eating. Um, <laughs> sorry, what were you going to say, Abby? But, yeah, but day day three. So, that, so you're kind of you've had a breakthrough end of day two. Yes. Rick goes, thank fuck. Yeah. Day three. <laughs> day Most three for me this time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> day three. It's like uh, what m- more of a less intense emotional response from you, and you're just kind of actually finding out information, or what? Yeah. Yeah, like I'm broken. Like if you watch the documentary that I was in, in mm-hmm. um, SBS documentary, the, the Feed, I don't know if you guys have heard of it, mm-hmm. but that was in 2014. Totally different me. Like I, I was so broken down. And so I think the third day was just me being like, fuck, I have nothing. I have no friends. I have no f- money. I have no degree. Mm-hmm. They made, you know, I had to stop studying. I have, my health is terrible. Um, I also developed osteoporosis. <laughs> um, wow. and it was just coming to terms with what I had lost. And that's a big thing that keeps people in is I, that the sunk cost fallacy, there's too much yes. to lose if I leave. So I'm going to ignore my cognitive dissonance and, and yeah. stay. Can you explain the sunk cost fallacy to people listening that don't know what that is? Yes. Uh, so it's the summit, the kind of weighing up of how much you've invested in something as a way of assessing whether it's still worth pursuing. Mm-hmm. And it's a fallacy because say you've invested in like tens of thousands of dollars in a car that you're trying to repair. Um, just pulling this example off the top of my head, mm. tens of thousands of dollars in this amazing car that you think is going to run really well. And it gets to the point where you keep investing more money, but it's still not running well. Mm-hmm. And you have two ways of looking at it. You could weigh up the fact that, well, I've spent so much money on this already that I'm not going to give up now. Mm-hmm. And you you don't know. It could take another $100,000 before it's in running condition. Mm-hmm. It might take – it might never be in running condition, but you're assessing it based on the amount you've already invested. Mm-hmm. And the reason it's a, a fallacy is because how much it's worth isn't related to how much you've invested mm-hmm. in it. Does that make sense? Yes. Did I explain that okay? And it's how MLMs get people in as well yes. because their first payment will be like $1,000 and then they won't be able to sell that and they'll go into the next one. Exactly. And they'll before they know it, they've invested $10,000, $20,000 into something and they go, well, I 
I'm going to make a sale the next time it's almost, right? Yes. So you've had, it isn't just financial, it's, well, it is financial for you as well because you're yeah. giving them your money, but it's emotional, it's time. It's also your late teens, early 20s. It's a very formative time. Yes. It's your spirituality. It's every single part of you mm-hmm. has been put into this. It isn't just money. 100%. So yes. it's so much harder to, to separate yourself. Which I have to say so many people who cover cult stories only focus on whether there's a sexual element. Now, I'm not mm. belittling that in any way. Mm. Mm. But there are just so many different ways of harming a person. Mm. And what you've gone through with like the eating disorder thing and just like, it's just unimaginable the amount of abuse. Like it's unreal. From every single angle. Yeah, but Mm. we're just always just focusing just on that and like... The salacious. And also the physical Mm. stuff like, oh, you weren't beaten. Yes. Oh, but, it, you know, so yeah. I think that's pretty much the crux of the cultural change <laughs> that we have to see is just mm. like stop just focusing on the very visible forms of abuse because yes. the invisible ones crushes a person entirely. Mm. Like yes. unreal yes. what's absolutely. happened to you, honestly. Right. And well done you for fucking charging on like that yes. like afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. So sorry, oh, what were you saying about sunk cost fallacy? How did we get onto that? So, yeah, so a lot of people don't leave cults for that reason. Yes. So they're presented with that information and they somehow figure out a way to deal with that cognitive dissonance because they can't mm. imagine what it will be like on the outside mm-hmm. and, and think that they've already come so far and invested so much and lost so much mm. that leaving isn't worth it. Freedom isn't worth it. Mm. For me, I, you know, I was broken either way. And once you kind of realise, oh, my God, I've been taken advantage of, for me, I was like, I can't. I, there's no going back. Just tell me everything you know. And so then he came prepared. He pulled out all these papers out of his briefcase and started talking about JMS. And I began to understand what coercive control was and what brainwashing was and what cults were. And the next year I spent just devouring every single thing I could about cults, you know, reading work of, you know, mm-hmm. Stephen Hassan, Yanya Lelik, um, Robert Lifton. These are all like big academics in the mm. field of cults and they're incredible people. And Rick Ross has actually written a book too. Um, Rick. Yeah. <laughs> he just continues to impress us. He, yeah. he gives so much. Love him. Um, Is it true that yeah. ev- even when you were in the cult, you used to joke with your friends there that you, like how funny it would be if you were actually brainwashed? Yes. Like you didn't, what? that's how brainwashed yes. you were? Yes. Wow. We were okay. so brainwashed. Yes. That we were like the, the idea of us being brainwashed. Ha 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 ha. Like it was ridiculous. We were like, we're enlightened. Um, and I remember our head leader saying to us, and I don't know, I was like, why did you even say that? But she was like, if someone ever accuses you of being brainwashed, just laugh at them and say, well, yes, I am brainwashed, brainwashed, you know, with the love of God or something like something stupid like that. Again, having an answer for everything. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Disarming that. That is line of questioning. mind blowing to me that that was the level of brainwashing that, that you were under. Yeah. So, uh, God, how do we fucking end this? Jesus Christ. <laughs> um, oh, yes, okay. How can people, how can people find out more information about not only this cult but, but cults in general? Like what are Absolutely. some resources that, I mean, obviously your TikTok. Yeah. Um, but what are some resources people can go to, to to learn more or to help someone if they think someone mm. they love or know is in a cult? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's a great question. Um, we've got a number of resources out there but you know, it's it's not because it's so taboo. There's mm. not a huge organisations that are behind this, mm. but we have lots of grassroots organisations. So mm. we have um, cult information, family support. Mm. They're called KIFs, and they are an 
organisation that helps counsel people when they've left a cult and also counsels families or people with loved ones in cults. And their website provides a lot of great information about coercive control, brainwashing, all that sort of thing. I can provide a number of links if you want to. That'd be great. We can put links in the show notes. That'd be incredible. Yeah. I'll send you everything that might be helpful. I have a lot of books that I can recommend that really helped me Mm -hmm. to heal. And also I can really recommend Sarah Steele's podcast. It's called Let's Talk About Sects. Mm-hmm. S-E-C-T-S. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, it's good, right? She interviews a lot of people who have been in cults. She also interviews um, cult academics and experts in the field. Mm. And she's Aussie. She's this Aussie journalist. Amazing. She's brilliant. So recommend that podcast as well. Great. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I can't thank you enough for your time and your energy and being able to tell us this entire story. I'm so proud of you for A, getting out be speaking up about it and then being threatened, then coming back and speaking up about it again and how hard you're working. And thank you so much much for for doing this with us. This has been absolutely incredible. Oh, well, just thank you for giving me and people like me a voice. It, it means so much. Um, I have so much respect for this podcast. Oh. Like, I love it already. Oh, good. Um, and so thank you, guys. It's it's a real privilege to be here and I really appreciate it. Thank you. So you can find um, Liz on TikTok. Uh, Liz the former, isn't it? Yes. Amazing. Um, and we'll link that in, in the show notes. Thanks so much, Liz. Thank you. Listener Production.